Have you ever experienced a bout of stubbornness where you just keep at something even though it's failed time and time again? You know, there's a difference between stubbornness and determination, right? I mean, it's one thing to have somebody come alongside and say, hey, can I help you with that? Or have you thought about trying it this way? And then you accepting their help and you continue to press on until the job is done. But then there's stubbornness where you just accept no one's help, no one's ideas. You just keep at it. This is what you're doing no matter what. You're going to figure out how to build this thing how to beat this game, how to do whatever it is that, it, that you've been working so hard to try to do. Now, when we think about stubborn people, I mean, Pharaoh ought to come at the top of our minds because we saw last week, right, through all these plagues, it didn't matter. He was continuing pressing on in his same old failed attempts just to kind of maintain the power, the control that he had. And so we went through the first four plagues last week, right? We saw the water turn to blood. We saw the frogs. We saw the gnats. We saw the flies. And it was terrible. It was awful. And every time Pharaoh's heart is so hard, that it's ringing out this pride, this stubbornness, this rebellion. Well, as God is working and as he's ringing all of this out of Pharaoh, at the same time, he is beginning to ring out hope in the people of Israel. I want you to see it this morning as we continue our series, Hope for the 757, studying through the book of Exodus. This morning, we're looking at the final six plagues. Really, we'll look at the, the, the five of them, and then the last plague, that 10th plague, we'll just kind of give the prelude to it in chapter 11. But We'll begin in chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, as we check out the fifth plague. I want you to hear it. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring terrible plague on your livestock in the field and on your horses, donkeys and camels, and on your cattle, sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. Now, as we saw last week, the first four plagues, they were bad. They were rough. I mean, nobody wants to have to go through seeing all your water turn to blood. Nobody wants those croaking frogs just kind of jumping all over everything you're trying to do. Nobody wants gnats flying into your ears and flying up your nose. And nobody wants just swarms of flies coming and biting you. I mean, those four plagues were rough. But beginning with the fifth plague, it seems as if things take a more severe turn. The plagues get even more intense. And this plague, it confronts the Egyptian god Hopi. Now, Hopi was the the god of the cattle, okay? He was this black bull god. In fact, we discovered from ancient Egypt that the second largest temple in all of ancient Egypt was to worship this god, Hopi. And it was believed that this god, well, he was powerful over the livestock. He made the livestock produce and provide food for them and all this. So, so he was a powerful god that they looked at. Well, God, he's going to strike a blow at this big black bull. He's demonstrating yet again the powerlessness of all the Egyptian false gods. And he's also showing them that he is the one true God. However, you remember, starting with the fourth plague, every plague from that point forward is only going to touch the Egyptians. They're not going to harm Israel anymore. And so... 
the Hebrews, they have some livestock, but their livestock is unharmed. None of their livestock is dying. And so Pharaoh, he goes to investigate this for himself. And sure enough, he finds out, yes, it's true. None of the Hebrew livestock is dying. Yet his heart is unyielding. It's continuing to ring out pride, stubbornness, rebellion. And so he's not going to let the people go. So there will be a sixth plague. I want you to hear it. It's Exodus 9, verses 8 through 10. It reads, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. So they took the soot from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh and Moses tossed it into the air and festering boils broke out on people and animals. This plague rather than attack on any one god this plague actually attacks the entire religious system for the egyptians you need to understand that for the ancient egyptians in order to become a priest in order to lead anybody in worship your body had to be without blemish and so if there was one spot anything you were unfit to be a worship leader to be a priest for the ancient egyptians also, they, they looked for fine goats and bulls, and these were their sacred animals that they would worship. And any goat, any bull that had any kind of marking on its body whatsoever was not fit to be a sacred animal. This animal could not be worshipped. And so you understand that this plague, it attacks their entire system. Because now you've got no priests left to worship. There's no sacred animals left to worship. And... Just imagine for a moment the way, the way that this worked is they would find these animals that had no blemishes and they would march them into the temple and they would reverently, ceremonially wash them and bring these animals out before the people and then the people would worship these animals. And now with this plague coming down, you can imagine that their entire worldview has just been turned upside down. Because there's no one left who can lead them in worship. All of their sacred animals that they would be worshiping, there are none left to worship. And the experts tell us that these boils, after they were gone, they would leave scars. They would leave marks. It's not like once the plague is gone, then things would go back to normal. No, they would have to make allowances. They would have to make adjustments in the way that they even practiced the things that they said they believed. This plague upsets their entire religious system. What's more is we've learned that back in those days, Egyptian priests, that they would take ashes from the furnaces where they offered sacrifices, and then they would throw those ashes into the air, and they believed that by doing that, it would prevent evil from coming upon them, that they're taking the ashes from these sacred sacrifices that they've made, tossing it into the air, and now there's this protection from the gods over them because of their, their sacrifices. Well, here, did you notice how this plague began? Moses and Aaron, they're told to go and to get the ashes out of the furnace and for Moses to throw it into the air for the boils to then come down on all the people. You see what God is saying, don't you? Says This practice that you think keeps you from evil, understand that I am the restrainer. I am the only restrainer. None of your false gods can restrain any evil whatsoever. It is only me. 
and all these animals that you think, oh, they're spotless, they're without blemish, they're worthy of worship. No, there's only one who is worthy of worship. That's me. I created all these animals. And so this plague, it attacks the entire system. Now, when this plague happens, Pharaoh, again, he refuses to listen to Moses and Aaron. And so there would be plague number seven. It's in Exodus chapter nine, verses 22 through 30. It reads, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt on people and animals and everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord raised hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. This plague is a challenge to the Egyptian goddess Isis. She was this goddess who was believed she would protect the people from the storms, from the hail and all of that, that she would provide rain when rain is needed, but protect them from all the major environmental catastrophes. And so here comes this incredible storm, a storm the likes of which Egypt had never seen before and would never see again. I mean, just lightning flashing, thunder clapping, hail like cannonballs, falling to the ground, stripping trees, just burying everything there, destroying all the plants, everything they've got. I mean, this is a brutal storm. You can imagine the people just hearing this and seeing the flashes and fires starting up, that they're probably cowering under their beds in Egypt. I mean, this is a scary time to be alive. And in the midst of all of this chaos, all of this confusion, Pharaoh, he summons Moses and Aaron again, and he says, if you I will let you go. I'm in the wrong here. Me and my people were all in the wrong. I'll let you go. Just go pray to your God so that he stops all this mess. And Moses says, you know, I'll go and I'll pray and God will stop it. But I know this, you still don't trust God. There, there, this is not a response of faith. This is just a circumstantial response of desperation. And so Moses goes, he prays, and yes, the storm does stop, but Pharaoh's heart is still hard. Pride, stubbornness, rebellion continue to be wrung out of his heart. And so comes plague eight, Exodus 10 verses three through six. It reads, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians. 
something neither your parents nor your ancestors have seen from the day they settled in this land till now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. So Pharaoh hears the announcement of this next plague and he gets Moses and Aaron together and he says, all right, guys, hey, let's make a deal here. I will let you guys go to worship. Who is it that you would like to take when you go worship? And Moses says, well, we'll be taking everyone and everything. God's come to rescue all of us. We'll all go to worship and every piece of cattle that we have, they'll come along too. And Pharaoh says, um, that deal's not going to work. I tell you what, I will let all the men go. Just take all the men. Y'all can go worship. All the women, children, cattle, they're going to stay here. And Moses says, no, that's not going to work. Because our God, he's come to rescue every single last one of us and every last piece of cattle that we own. Well, this doesn't go too well. Pharaoh, he's not budging. And so this eighth plague hits. It's this plague of locusts. And it attacks the Egyptian god, Seth. Now, Seth, he's the one in charge of just the natural order of things. And he keeps storms at bay and makes everything just work the way they're supposed to work. Well, the thing that the Egyptians feared most were locusts. Because they knew if this insect would come, that it could destroy crops, it could be very dangerous. And Seth, he's the God who keeps everything working in their proper order so that nothing gets too much, nothing is out of whack, everything is in this proper balance. Well, this God of order cannot keep the order. The locusts come in and they swarm and they eat up everything. The Bible tells us that there was nothing green left that it was all gone. I mean, Moses had given Pharaoh the warning that, hey, if, if, you, if this happens, you need to know that what little you have left after that hailstorm, it's all going to be gone. And sure enough, it was all gone. Even the existence of the Egyptians was in somewhat jeopardy at this point. And so Pharaoh, he summons Moses and Aaron again. Again, he says, oh, I've sinned. Please do something about it. Again, Aaron, Moses and Aaron pray, and again, the, the locusts, they're, they're blown out to sea. They die. And again, after the plague calms down, Pharaoh's heart continues to be hard, and it continues to ring out pride, stubbornness, rebellion. And he says, no, your people are not going anywhere. And this brings up plague number nine. It's in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23. And it reads, then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. This plague, it confronts the Egyptian sun god Ra. Now, Ra was the most worshipped god in all of Egypt, except for one god, and that would be Pharaoh himself. And this sun god, Ra, he was believed to bestow upon the people life and blessing and hope. And darkness? Well, that represented judgment and death and hopelessness. And so here, this intense darkness, a darkness so intense that you can feel it. You can't see your hand in front of you, much less anyone else. You can't move about. It's not safe because it is a complete absence of life. This sun god who's supposed to bring about life and light and happiness and joy and blessing. 
Well, there's, there's no light at all. There's no blessing here at all. It's just utter darkness. You have this sense of impending judgment. You see, this plague almost is a prelude to the tenth and final plague. And unlike all the plagues before it, and even the tenth plague after it, this plague is unannounced. There's no warning to Pharaoh this time. There's no command, let my people go worship. There's none of that this time. It just happens. And it, because it is setting up the tenth and the final plague. You know, time after time after time, Pharaoh, he's trying to make these deals. And this time again, uh, he tries to make a deal with Moses. And he calls Moses in. He says, hey, Moses, we, we got to get this darkness stopped. I tell you what, you, all the people can go worship. Just leave your animals here. Well, again, that's not going to fly with Moses. He continues to show this just unwavering faithfulness that God is going to rescue every last person and every last piece of cattle that the Hebrews have. And so he doesn't, he's not making any deals with Pharaoh at all. You know, as we've kind of gone through these plagues, you can read back through them, right? And you can see how Pharaoh is always trying to scheme. He's always trying to make a deal. He does not, he just wants to make a deal with God. He never wants to surrender to God. He's always trying to negotiate, never willing to surrender. And you see it over and over again. There's this point, if you were to go back and look, and he says, I tell you what, you guys can go and worship. You just can't leave the land. Moses says, no, that's not going to work. And then another time, after another plague, Pharaoh says, all right, you can go worship, just don't go very far. And then there's another time, all right, you, you can go worship just you and the men, though. You got to leave the women and children. And then here, you can go worship, just don't take the animals with you. And I'm telling you what, I mean, by this time, I might have been, I might have been like, you know what, we've been through a lot. There's freedom here that's being offered. We're out of here. You know, who cares about the, the cattle anyway? But Moses, he shows his, his character is revealed here that he has this unwavering faith that God is going to do everything that he says he's going to do. So there will be no deal making. Now, before we kind of introduce the tenth and final plague, uh, you need to understand that after this plague, Pharaoh says, you know what, if, if you're not willing to make a deal with me, the next time I see you, you're going to be dead. And Moses says, don't worry, you won't see me again. And then he's going to introduce the tenth plague and then he'll be out of there. But before we get to all that, you need to understand this, that as we kind of go through and we read about all these events that happened in, e in Egypt. It can be somewhat easy for us today to look at all these events in ancient Egypt and think this is some interesting history and how God confronted all these false gods that the Egyptians worshipped. But we can also wonder, can't we, like what relevance does this have to our lives today? We don't live in a polytheistic society. We're not seeing all this kind of stuff. So how does what happened in the events of the Exodus have any relevance to how I'm going to live my life today, tomorrow, this next week. Well, I want to just take a couple of moments and look at some real practical implications that we get from these plagues, because they do reveal a lot into how we ought to be living here and now. So I want just to kind of think through this, think through this with you for, for a minute here. Um, the first thing I want you to see is that the plagues teach us that God is almighty. 
that he is all powerful, that he controls everything. The plagues teach us that God is the powerful one who controls everything, restrains everything, sets everything in the natural order of things. You know, in Genesis, we see God revealed as the creator. And in Exodus, we see that God is still ruling over his creation. In Genesis, God, he fashions order out of chaos. And in Exodus, he takes order and he turns it into chaos. Why? Because he is the almighty. He can do what he wants when he wants. But understand this, because God is almighty, he can help you in every situation. Because God is almighty, he is powerful enough, he can help in every situation. See, no matter what you're going through, God is able to help. He can reach into every situation, every detail of life. Nothing is too big for God. He can touch the skies and the sun. Nothing is too small for God. He can use the dust and the flies. There is nothing in your life. There's no worry. There's no fear. There's no anxiety. There's no issue that he cannot help with. He can help with all the details of life when it comes to finances or relationship stress or dietary issues, anything like that he can touch. He can also touch these big global issues like thermonuclear war, environmental catastrophes, and the devaluing of human life. He can touch it all. He can touch the very biggest issues of our life. He can touch that stain of sin and he can help. He can make us whole. He can redeem us fit to be a child of the one true King. He can do all that because God is almighty. He can help in every situation. You know, the plagues, they also teach us that God is a jealous God that he's not willing to share his glory with anyone or anything else. You know, the Egyptians, I mean, they have all these false gods of their own imagination that they worship instead of worshiping the one true God. And they do. They worship everything from flies to frogs and from the sun to the dust. They worship it all. And God says, no, I am the only one worthy to be worshiped. You know, Paul would later write in the book of Romans, that there are people who they appear to be wise in their own eyes, but in actuality, their thinking is futile. Their hearts are dark, that they take and they worship the creation rather than the creator. And God says, I'm not willing to exchange that. I'm not willing to share my glory with someone else. I alone am the creator. I am alone the one worthy to be worshiped. I want you to worship in truth. I want you to worship in spirit and in truth. This is the truth that I alone am worthy to be worshiped. And understand this, since God is a jealous God, we glorify him in everything. We glorify him in every last thing that we do. We don't make idols out of our jobs. We don't make idols out of our kids. We don't make idols out of our entertainment. We understand rightly that we use our job. This this benefit to be able to contribute back to the creation that God has made. We understand that our kids are to be discipled, to love God and to serve others. We understand that entertainment is a gift of God, that we get to enjoy blessings and joy here in a broken down society. We don't misuse any of that. We understand that every detail of our lives ought to bring glory to God. Every last thing that we do, our jobs, the way we parent, our families, our friends, our neighbors, 
our entertainment, that we can all use it to bring glory to God. Paul would even write that every last detail of our lives should bring glory to God, even the way that we eat, drink, and sleep. That everything we do, we glorify God. Why? Because he is a jealous God and he wants to see our lives structured in such a way that it all brings glory to him. And if there's anything out of whack, then we're missing the mark. It doesn't matter how small it may seem. If our sleep habits are out of whack in a way that is dishonoring God, then we got some stuff to work on, right? We need to get back into that proper relationship with him so that he is honored even in that. Since God is a jealous God, we glorify him in everything. There's another lesson that I want to pull out from the plagues, and there's many more that we could, but I wanted to highlight these three. And the, and the last one is this. From the plagues, we see that God is merciful. He is a merciful God. Now, I know that I've kind of given the Hebrews a bad time here these last couple of weeks. Why? Because they're dreaming. Their dreams amount to a better form of slavery. They want Moses out of there. They're trying to renegotiate this better deal with Pharaoh to get back and better graces with him and so that they can have the straw that's needed to make the bricks and perhaps their quota will come down. They just want a better form of slavery. But do you remember why the events of the Exodus really unfolded? I mean, God said, God told Moses that this all will unfold. Why? Because I have heard the cries of my people and I have remembered my covenant with them. Now, were these people having a perfect faith? No, it was a pretty small, minuscule kind of faith. Were these people like heroes that you look up to as, man, look at the way that they follow God and the way they live out their relationship with him? No, there's not a lot there right at that moment. They're, They're a broken down, beaten down, hopeless, in many ways, kind of a people. But because they cried out, because they prayed, even with this minuscule faith, God hears their cries and there's hope for the people living in Egypt, these Hebrews in Egypt. See, understand this, since God is merciful, he will save you when you turn to him. Since God is merciful, he will save you when you turn to him. You don't have to wait to make sure your theology is all buttoned up. You don't have to wait for your life to be perfect, to be all cleaned up, that you get rid of all of your problems, all of your issues. You know, you don't have to wait for every last thing to look just right. No, if you will turn to God, even with this incomplete kind of faith and this partial belief, even when things aren't 100% all squared away, it doesn't matter. God will save you. And and isn't that the beauty of the scriptures? As we see this over and over and over again, where God takes people in whatever kind of state they are, and then he saves them. He brings them into a relationship with himself, and then he uses them in ways they never could have imagined. I mean, he takes this picked on, despised younger brother who's boasting about his dreams. He takes Joseph, and he turns him into a man who can lead nations. He takes an old runaway fugitive wandering around tending sheep in the wilderness, Moses, and he uses him to bring a people into freedom. He takes a forgotten shepherd boy out in the hills and he turns him, David, to lead, to be the best king ever of Israel. 
He takes a foul-mouthed fisherman, Peter, and he turns him into a church planner. He takes a murderous zealot, Paul, and he turns him into a missionary. And the fact is that when we turn to him too, he will save us and he will take us and he will use us to share Jesus, to disciple people, impact people in ways that we never thought we possibly could because this is the God we serve. He is merciful and he will save you when you turn to him. Now, these lessons, they're important to keep in mind. It's important to look and to see that you know, what God is saying and how God was working then really does have a direct impact on the way that we live our lives and that we think today. And all of this, it sets up the 10th plague. And really, we just get a prelude to it this morning as we look at uh, briefly here at Exodus chapter 11. But you need to understand that this 10th and final plague, it is a brutal plague. But God understands that this plague is going to allow him to ultimately bring the rescue of his people. So he tells Moses, hey, you need to go and prepare the people because I'm about to set them free. And here's what you need to do. You need to make sure that they pack up all of their gold and all their silver, all their valuables. Now, it seems kind of like an odd request to us, doesn't it? Because we would expect that God would tell them, hey, you need to pack up all the food and all the water. I mean, you're about to make a journey. You're leaving Egypt. You're going someplace else. It's not the luxuries in life that you need. It's the bare necessities of life. But see, God, he thinks beyond us, doesn't he? He understands that, no, what you need are the luxuries. You need the gold and the silver because all of that is going to be used to build the tabernacle, to be a reminder to the people that I am with you. And you don't need to worry about bringing any food and water. Why? Because that's going to be an opportunity for me to continually to demonstrate to the Hebrew people that I can provide for every last need that you have. And so, as God is telling all of this to Moses, Moses is still in the presence of Pharaoh, and he's going to have a message that he has to deliver to Pharaoh, he's this warning of this final tenth plague. And here it is, Exodus 11, verses 4 through 8. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours, they will come to me bowing down before me and saying, go you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. This final plague is an attack on the Egyptian god, Pharaoh. Pharaoh himself, he's thought to be the most powerful Egyptian god of all the gods. And Pharaoh, he was worshipped as a god. He believed himself to be a god as that when they died, pharaohs were treated as if they were gods. I mean, this god was the one they thought who ruled and protected over all the people. And Pharaoh, he's thought to be this one who is so powerful that he could prevent anything. He leads the most prosperous nation on the world. He is seen as a god. He's the one who gave that awful, awful edict, that law to go and to kill all the Hebrew boys. 
Well, now God's going to say, you know, I'm able to work without laws, without edicts. I do as I want, as I need. And because of you continue to ring out this pride, this stubbornness, and this rebellion, this awful plague is going to come upon you and your people, the likes of which you've never seen before. Why he is trying to, he is a patient God, but he's trying to wake these people up to the fact that there is just one true God. Now, it's interesting because at this point, the people actually listen to Moses. I mean, these same people who were begging Moses to leave earlier, who wanted him out of there so fast so that they could just go back to a better kind of slavery. Something has happened as these plagues have worn on. The people now respect Moses. They're following Moses. They see him as a leader worthy to be followed. God is doing something in their hearts. And at the same time, he's continuing to ring out of the heart of Pharaoh, this ultimate false god, continued pride, stubbornness, and rebellion. But he's working in the hearts of the Hebrews to wring out of their hearts hope, hope for freedom. Why? Because hope dreams big dreams. Heavenly Father, as we go through the plagues this morning, it's so easy just to see this as ancient history. But God, we understand that how you reveal yourself then has a direct correlation to how we live today. Because God, you are unchanging. And we see that just as you were then, you are today. You are a jealous God. You are a merciful God. So God, help us to orient every aspect of our lives in ways that will glorify you. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your spirit and through the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.